Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. Yes, it is a good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to open God's Word together. Let's talk about ambition. Ambition is a wild thing. It's kind of a funny thing. Ambition can cause us to work 100-hour weeks and still feel like we didn't get enough done. Ambition can make us move to crazy parts of the world just to climb a ladder. Ambition can make people do wild things. Ambition is the only logical reason why anyone would reply to this wanted ad. Wanted. Men for hazardous journey. Small wages. Bitter cold. Long months of complete darkness. Constant danger. Safe return. Doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. Now, this was a wanted ad from 1914, and let me just kind of set the context for you a little bit. Teddy Roosevelt, our nation's greatest president, is in office. The Ford Motor Company is just starting to mass produce their cars. Uh, and we're just three years removed from the first people setting foot on Antarctica. That We finally found the South Pole. In the early 20th century, if you had ambition, you wanted to explore, that's what you got involved with, South Pole exploration. It was kind of like the 60s, like we were all trying to get to the moon. Well, in 1914, everyone was trying to get to Antarctica, trying to go south. And so Ernest Shackleton was a successful businessman and entrepreneur, and he wanted to go to the South Pole. He wanted to be the first person to stick the flag of England on the South Pole. And so he wrote that wanted ad. And as Nancy Kane, uh, the historian from Harvard University, tells his story, uh, she talks about how he was kind of this odd and eccentric man. Like he would interview people to go on this journey and he'd have them do really weird things. Like he would have them just randomly sing a song, tell jokes. And he was trying to see just like what kind of people were interviewing because he knew he needed like the right kind of crew if he was really going to head off on this dangerous journey. But the big thing he was looking for, ambition. He wanted people who wanted to make something of themselves. It's the only reason you would go on such a crazy journey to make a name for yourself. Be one of the first people in Antarctica. So what happened? It's a famous story as history tells it. Uh, as they were headed south, they ended up at a whaling station. Yeah, this is like different times, right? So they ended up at a whaling station. Uh, and the people at the whaling station said like, oh, you guys shouldn't head there. The ice is shifting. It's going to be pretty bad. Shackleton had ambition. He's like, no way, we're going. And so they head and they're navigating through the ice. And what happens? The icebergs shift and the boat gets stuck. And so Ernest Shackleton with his crew and all their ambitions were stuck on an iceberg for not one year, but almost two years. They never made it to Antarctica. All their ambition just got stuck on an iceberg. Is that an analogy for following Jesus? 
Is that what it's like to follow Jesus? Where we have all this ambition and then we end up just sitting on an iceberg waiting to be rescued. All of our plans, all our hopes, all the stuff we wanted to get done, well, we won't do that. We just kind of sit around waiting for heaven. And the reason I ask that is because in the Lord's Prayer, there are four words. Four words that I think if we understood what we were asking for, it would give all of us pause. Your will be done. What are we asking for? Are we asking for, sounds like, we're asking for something that will cost us everything. It sounds like we are asking for the death of our ambitions. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it just sitting around waiting for rescue, just waiting to go to heaven? Or is there something on the other side of the death of our ambitions? Like, yes, when the call to follow Jesus is a call to surrender. Does that word sound familiar? We use it a lot around these parts. Surrender. It's an invitation to hold our ambitions in open hands. But what's on the other side of that? What happens after we do that? Do we just live life in a completely surrendered way and not really do anything, just sit around waiting to go to heaven? And, and how, what does prayer have to do with that? Is, it, prayer just seems to be the ultimate, just sitting around, not doing anything, letting our ambitions die. Well, in the passage that we're going to unpack this morning, Jesus does the heart work, where he helps us see that, yes, like our ambitions are going to change following Jesus. They're going to be redirected. But prayer is not simply just waiting on an iceberg for rescue. No, it is experiencing the transforming power of his presence as we spend time with him. God changes us through prayer, and it's not the death of our ambitions, it's the rebirth of ambitions. On the other side of the death of ambitions, we get truer, better ambitions. Stuff that we didn't even think we knew was possible. That's the promise of the Lord's Prayer. Yes, there is a sense where our ambitions die. But that's not the end of our story. That's not the end of us. On the other side, we're redirected to something more beautiful. We're redirected to his presence, which transforms us and transforms our ambitions. I know the past couple weeks as we've been talking about prayer, I said prayer is not necessarily about getting stuff done. It's about learning to sit with God. And when we do that, we get stuff done. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the Lord's Prayer together, okay? We're going to read it together. It's going to be up on the screen. I'll lead us off. And then what we're going to do after we're done reading is I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you all will, will reply, thanks be to God. We want to be grateful that he speaks to us. He hasn't left us in the dark. And then I'm going to ask for his help, that his spirit would move, okay? So let's read this together. Ready? This, then, is how you should pray. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Father, the invitation to come into your presence and surrender absolutely feels impossible. Father, I pray that we would feel the weight of that. But God, I pray that we would see what your son is praying, that this is not rooted in earning, this is rooted in grace. So Father, I pray your spirit would come and help us to see the grace that is involved as we learn to hold our ambitions in open hands. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Prayer is really difficult. And I I don't just mean crisis prayers, like when we're in a situation and we just throw up a, oh God, if you get me out of this this problem, I promise I will such and such, right? I don't want to knock crisis prayers, okay? Like the world has totally been changed because people have cried out in crisis. I am not trying to knock that. But if we're going to really experience the transforming power of prayer, it needs to be a regular rhythm, And that's where it gets really difficult for us. We've experienced false starts. We're like, okay, it's a new year, new me. I'm going to spend more time praying. We start, we have a couple weeks, it's awesome. And then it just kind of tapers out. There's another barrier to our praying and it's our own conscience. How many of you have ever had this experience where you go to pray and then you start to hear this? You start praying and you hear voices that say something like this. Hey, how long has it been since you've read your Bible? When was the last time you looked at porn? Gosh, don't you think you should get that taken care of before you start praying? What are you doing? You're not super spiritual. Like, you can't have a deep, meaningful prayer life. That's for like the super saint. Like, what are you doing? Or maybe you sat down to pray and just that whole time thing. Like, oh, I don't have the time to pray. See, there's all these barriers to prayer, and if we really are going to have a meaningful and deep and rich prayer life, if we're really going to experience God's presence that transforms us and helps us get things done, we have to address these barriers, and we have to address them head on. When we first read the Lord's Prayer, it can sound sort of condemning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. It's an old English word that the word holy is from. So here's what, here's what Jesus is praying right out of the gate. God, you're holy. I pray that we would treat your name with reverence, right? And we feel this sense of like, ooh, I can't go into God's presence. Yikes, like that's not for me. I got to clean myself up. Then I can come into God's presence, But the prayer, hallowed be your name, is exactly what we need to pray when we feel condemnation. Hallowed be your name is a prayer for people who feel condemned. Here's, here's, you need to notice this. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus starts right out the gate and he asks for three things. First thing, 
Hallowed be your name. Second thing, your kingdom come. And the third thing, your will be done. It is by design in this prayer that your will be done is not first. It is not an accident that Jesus doesn't right out of the gate say, hey God, your will be done. He works his way to that request. And what comes before that request is absolutely essential that we get this. Absolutely essential. Christianity is not a cult. I have had friends that have dabbled in certain cults, okay? I have had a friend who fooled around for a little bit with Scientology. Here's, here's the thing about Scientology. It asks for a lot up front, Some Scientologists, they ask for your social security number. They're asking for money. They're asking for a ton of stuff up front. Jesus is not selling anything. He is giving things away. Those first two words are so important in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Our Father. That has echoes back to the very first place in the Bible where God is called a father, the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is a tale of two dads. Two dads go to war. Pharaoh, the bad dad, and Yahweh, the good dad. And we see these two dads battle it out. One dad is stubborn, and he's so stubborn, he risks the life of his firstborn son just to be right. Yahweh shows up and says, hey, let my child go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And, and Moses is like, hey, this isn't going to go well for you. God really loves his kid. You've moved him into a bad neighborhood. You put him in slavery. He's going to show up. He's kicking butt. He's taking names. Please let them go. And he says, no way. And it gets to a point where he says, hey, if you don't let him go, he's going to kill your firstborn. And Pharaoh says, let's see if he does. That's a bad dad. That's a terrible father. Yahweh is not that dad. Yahweh does not showing up demanding that you die first. Yahweh gives. Yahweh comes and rescues. And so when we ask for for help surrendering, we're not asking from someone who says, I'm not helping you until you surrender. The very first step in this is grace. You need to get that. If you miss this, you miss Christianity. Christianity is not, I'm going to clean my life up and come to God. Once I'm clean, then he'll love me. Christianity is, I experience rescue first. Period. No strings attached. It is by design. Jesus is trying to work on our hearts. Grace comes first. And that's why it's so radical that when he moves from our father, he then says this, hallowed be your name. I absolutely love Eugene Peterson's translation of this. This is what Peterson says, our father in heaven, reveal who you are. 
That's what the biblical authors meant when they prayed, hallowed be your name. Jesus doesn't just pull this out of thin air. It's the prophets prayed this all the time. The clearest place is in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in uh, Israel as things are like circling the drain. It's not going well. And he has a vision. And he goes into God's temple and he sees God high and lifted up. And there's these spiritual beings. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. That's our word. Hallowed be your name. All right? And what happens? Isaiah feels condemnation. He says this, woe am I. That's a funeral dirge. It's like, I'm a, I'm a goner. Life was great. Peace out. He says this, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He is aware of his guilt. He's in God's presence. He's aware of his guilt. And what happens? Then one of the spiritual beings flew to me with a a coal in his hand, which was taken from the tongs of the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Here's what's happening. God's presence, which we're so afraid of, This is the biggest barrier to prayer. We don't feel worthy to go in his presence. We feel shame, so we hide out in the background. But the promise of God's presence is that it transforms us. See that? Isaiah was guilty, and he was touched by something from the altar. So something in God's holy courtroom touches him and transforms him. When Jesus prays, reveal who you are, he's saying, yes, God, you are different from me. You are not like me. And when you come and spend time with me as a father, as a savior, as a rescuer, I get transformed. That's nothing you or I do by our effort. Jesus says it like this in in John 15. If you abide in me, it's super important to pay attention to if-then sentences. If this happens, then this will happen. If you abide in me, what will happen? Then you will bear fruit. We get transformed not through our effort. Is there effort involved? Yes. It is hard to be in God's presence. But our effort isn't what transforms us. It's his presence. If we abide in him, we will bear fruit. So how do we do that? You need to start questioning your condemnation. If you really want to address this barrier, this barrier that your condemnation, it it keeps you from enjoying what you already have. The, the, the presence and the pleasure of God. What was prayed this morning, it was so beautiful. We are under friendly skies. There is no condemnation. We have that. That is a gift. We do not earn that. Praying hallowed be your name is not saying, hey, I've lost that. Please help me get it back. It's saying, hey, show up and make me aware of that. If condemnation keeps you from that, you need to start not learning to squash it, but learning to get curious about it. Spend more time facing the things and the thoughts that condemn you. Spend more time asking, well, what is it about this that makes me feel that way? Why is it that I feel, because I haven't read my Bible in like a month, why is it that I feel that I shouldn't be allowed to pray because I haven't read my Bible? I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to pray because I haven't read my Bible. Well, what's underneath that? Performance. 
I earned access because I did this spiritual deed. Okay. All right. I'm not going to squash that. I'm going to bring that into God's presence. Hey, God, I come to you as someone who loves performing. I think that if I do the right things, you will bless me. Instead of trusting what the Lord's prayer says, you're already the father. You're the father. You're the one who rescues. And right now I'm in need of rescue. And my condemnation is not pushing me toward you. It's actually keeping me away from you. So should I listen to it? Probably not. All right. Look, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. All right. I am not saying, hey, don't listen to your conscience, live however you want, walk on the grass, spray aerosol spray cans, it doesn't matter, it's all going to burn. I am not saying that, okay? Everything's just as fine as a frog, you can live how you want. I am not saying that. There really, we, even as followers of Jesus, we can make mistakes, we can do things that are unjust, absolutely. But here's how you know something is condemnation versus just simply good old-fashioned conviction. It usually speaks to you in the second person. You don't deserve this because you are a failure. You shouldn't pray. If people really knew you, the real you, man, they would run out of here screaming. That's condemnation. Conviction says, oh, hey, I recognize that I behaved in this way and that was wrong. And I own that. I'm responsible for that. But I am not a failure. I am a child. I call out to a father. So I bring my conviction and I bring my condemnation and I both lay both of those things before him. This is not about earning. Asking God that his name be hollowed is not saying, hey God, Please help me, give me the energy to fix myself up so I'm worthy. It's asking that he reveal who he is so that we can fulfill the next request. So the first request is, hallowed be your name. The second thing he asks for is this, your kingdom come. That's Jesus' way. Peterson, I think, nails it again. He says this, set the world right. He's saying this, look, the world which I'm a part of is not as it should be. I am not as I should be. Set me right. This is a holistic way to pray. It's not just praying for things out there. Hey, like big picture stuff, pray all these big picture things work out, that you set the government right, all these things. It's also praying that we would be set right. Help me to be set right. Help me to be transformed by your presence. And this takes time. And that's the second barrier that we face when it comes to bringing our whole selves in front of God, is time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like your dad for a second, okay? Now, uh, how many of you had a dad who said something like this? We love our dads, but anyway. Oh, I see you didn't, uh, I see you didn't mow the lawn this week. Well, that's probably because you weren't prioritizing it. You certainly had enough time for Netflix, so that seems that was a priority, but the lawn wasn't a priority. You need to prioritize the lawn because that should be the right priority. You need to get your priorities in line, okay? We've all had dads that have said that to us, but look, here's the thing. I very much prioritize learning and growing and like being curious about the world we live in. I don't have like a PhD, right? I just don't, the newsflash, you're like, yeah, we know. Uh, 
I don't have a PhD, okay? And it's not because I'm not curious. I just didn't do it. And so, like, motivating yourself with this, like, oh, if you really prioritize this, you would make time, is terrible motivation. That is not going to force you. That's not going to invite you. That's not going to welcome you into God's presence at all. It's just going to feed the condemnation machine. Well, now not only am I a failure, I also have whacked out priorities. Here's what you need to do instead. You need to learn to hack your habits. So don't worry about time. Start valuing your routines. When I was in seminary, uh, I used to be wildly forgetful. And so I would have friends that we'd be talking, and I'm like, oh man, I have exactly what you need. I have it at our, our apartment. I'll bring it to you tomorrow. And then I would just totally forget, right? Was it that I didn't value my friends? No, I absolutely valued my friends. I just like legitimately would always forget things. I was super forgetful. And then one night we were talking to a friend and I just kind of happened to lament this. Like, oh man, like I always forget things. Like I think I'm hurting my reputation in the community. People are like, oh yeah, Craig, he'll get that for you. And I just forget. And he said, oh, you need to hack your habits. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, here's what you need to do. Uh, the night before you go, just grab that book and put it in front of your door. So that way in the morning when you're running out grabbing things, you don't have to be like, oh man, I, I got to go get that book. You're not going to remember. But when you open the door and pfft, you like scrape over the book, you're like, oh man, I got to get this to so-and-so. Hacking our habits. That's how we are going to learn how to pray. Here's how you can hack your habits. I'm not saying find a ton of time. There's two small windows that we can hack that if we learn how to do this, we'll pray more. You've already done one of them. I don't know if you're aware of this. Nowhere, okay? You can Google it. I'll win. <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to pray before every meal, okay? Why do we do that? Because people a long time ago realized, oh, we can hack our habits, we can just create this regular habit of praying before the meal, and then before you know it, we're always just regularly praying before the meal. We're hacking our habits. So here's what you can do. When you pull into work, just give yourself two minutes. Before you get out of the car, two minutes, put your phone on silent, and just take that two minutes praying. And the same in the evening when you pull into the, the, the garage, the driveway, same thing, two minutes before you head back in the house. No one will even know you're home yet be fine. All right? And you're thinking like, two minutes? You can't get anything done in two minutes. Here's the thing. This prayer, if you read the whole thing of it, it takes about 40 seconds. And we were reading kind of slow. All right? And this prayer has transformed the world. It's not about the amount of time. It's about the quality of that time. And if we take that regular rhythm of two minutes of just seeking God, of dealing with our condemnation, of saying, like, Lord, I, I, I've not been aware of your presence for weeks. I've not been seeking it. And I feel like I need to just be away from you. If we do that, we're going to slowly over time start to experience the transforming power. But it's not going to come if you're like, okay, I'm going to do an hour of prayer this week. I'm going to car, I'm not going to watch Netflix. I'm going to just set a timer and I'm going to pray for an hour. If you do that, you'll be as about as healthy as I am physically. 
Okay, my wife has for, since we've been married, trying to get me to run half marathons, trying to get me to do all these things, and here's what I do. For like a month, I'm like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're eating spinach, we're eating kale. I'm running. This is fantastic. And then we have like peanut butter M&Ms, donuts, and then poof, game over. I have no desire to run. Here's the thing. Don't be legalistic about time. Don't be like, man, this is two minutes. I don't feel like that's super impressive. Who cares? Like, who cares? All right? Nobody's watching. And you know what? The one who is watching sees and values that. This is all about grace. This is about him entering our space and us crying out from that space saying, hey, this is hard. This is hard. And he answers those prayers with his presence. Okay? Here's the next thing. Do you ever wonder why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread? Our daily bread? Every day, it's supposed to root us in the here and now. Being totally present. Supposed to be rooted right now. He's not saying, hey, give us our yearly bread. Hey, supply everything for us for the next 10 years. He's saying, hey, right now I have needs. Right now, I need you to show up. This, this is that regularity, that regular rhythm. The original audience of Jesus' day would hear this far differently than you and I hear this. Uh, up until very recently, like people didn't know where their next meal was coming from. The prayer for daily bread was an actual prayer for like, hey, I have no idea how I'm going to feed my family the next week. Please provide. There was a sense of desperation. When we understand grace, when we understand that this is not God showing up saying, you must die right now, but he's saying, hey, I rescue you and I transform you into someone who is living a life with an open hand because they've experienced grace, we become people who can take risks. And so we are all, as a body, going to take a risk together, okay? And we're calling this risk ramen, rice, and beans. So for the next week, we are all going to learn what it means to ask for daily bread. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're trying to give you a runway for it, okay? So we know some of you buy groceries ahead, so we're going to do this for the next couple of weeks. Don't worry. Here's what we're going to do, though. Uh, we live in the land of not just the plentiful, but the too much, okay? Like, uh, I was talking to someone and they said that uh, a friend of theirs was a missionary from another country and they came to America and they said, man, Americans are so crazy. They have whole rooms in their house that's for stuff they don't use. And I was like, oh, stor- storage. Oh, yeah. I, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I have that. Ooh. Right? We just have so much. We have pantries full of stuff. It's really hard for us to feel the weight of this prayer. So, my gift to you is this week, here's what we're doing. We're going to live on ramen, rice, and beans for the week. Okay? So we're going to cut back intentionally. So we're all going to say, hey, we totally can buy all these things, but for one week, we're cutting back as a daily reminder that he meets our needs. As a daily reminder that like, man, I, when I'm in crisis, when I'm calling out for things, I don't see all the other ways he's providing. I just see all the things he hasn't done. And we don't realize, like, we live in a place where he is richly and just, he's just showered us with so much stuff. 
So we're going to take away some of that stuff, all of us together. All right? That's step one. All right? So step one is we're going to commit to a week of just eating ramen, rice, and beans. Ramen, because I, I want to take care of you college students, okay? Like, you probably won't even have to change your diet. Um, rice and beans, that's what we all ate when we were starting out, right? When we had no money, when we just had to, like, you know, go in, like, the glove compartment to find change to help pay for our groceries, right? So we're all going to live simply. But then here's what we're going to do. Uh, we are going to take the receipts from you going to the grocery store. Take the receipts and then take another receipt like from last week. All right? We're going to figure out the difference. So you're like, okay, a couple weeks ago, I spent 115 bucks on groceries with ramen, rice, and beans. I spent $12 on groceries. Wow. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to subtract the difference and then you'll donate it to us. And then I'm leaving the country. (laughs) Just kidding. What we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to give that to an organization in town that actually helps people uh, with daily bread needs, okay? So we have an organization in mind. It all depends on how much we get, uh, but we're going to gift this, all of our extra money from our excess to this organization. Now, why are we doing this? Why in the world am I asking you to live on less? Here's why. Because on Thursday afternoon, when you are sick and tired of rice and beans, and you're like, Craig, this was cute on Sunday, but I really want chocolate. This is awful. You will see firsthand the transforming power of your habits. Your life was beautiful a couple weeks ago, and now this week it's miserable because you can't have what you really want. And that's how fast a habit can totally change things. Prayer really does change things. When God shows up and we spend time in his presence, we bear fruit. And look, we're not going to do this alone, too. That's the other thing, is that we want, we want to have this routine be met with camaraderie, all right? So you can know that as miserable as you are on Thursday afternoon, I'm going to be miserable, too, with you, okay? I don't really like rice and beans. It's not my, it's not my jam. But I'm going to be doing it with you. You're not alone in this. Camaraderie and routines will help us feel like we are moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, uh, Ernest Shackleton and his crew, this is their boat. This is the endurance. They spent two years there, but here's the wild part of this story. They all survived. All right. And, And like they all survived without any violence. There were, there were no mutinies. No one's like, you know what, Ernest? I think I'm going to be the captain now. You had your chance. I've spent a year and a half here on this iceberg. I'm going to try my way. No. They actually, the, the crew was really like unified and, and had a good time as much as you can being stuck on an iceberg. How in the world did Ernest Shackleton do it? Well, what he credits his success and survival to is routine and camaraderie. Every day, he would give the men things to do. And there were simple things of like, hey, I want you to walk three laps around this iceberg. I want you to go hunt seals. Different times, survival, you know, I'm not advocating hunting seals and whales. He gave people things to do, and he didn't let them do it alone. And he found that having routines and having camaraderie helped fight doubt. The men felt like they were a part of something bigger. And that bigger thing was survival. So what happens? The iceberg drifts and off in the distance they see an island. And so they know this is their chance to make a break for it. So the boat sinks at this point. 
and they get all the life rafts off of it. They load everything they have onto these life rafts, and then they take the dangerous journey across the strait. And it took them three days, and they thought they were going to die. These are experienced sailors. They were terrified. They thought that this was the end. They finally get to the island. But when they get there, they realize the island is still too remote. No one's ever going to find us here. So what does they do? Ernest Shackleton, like a good leader, says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on a lifeboat. If anyone wants to come with me, they can. And I'm going to make the 800-mile journey in a lifeboat to go back to that whaling station and see if we can experience rescue. He did. He made it. Here's what happened, though. They, they ended up sending a crew back. Nobody died. It was amazing. When the men came back to Europe, though, Europe was a totally different place. World War I was in full swing. So some of the men who survived this crazy journey end up dying on the battlefields of Europe. But then a couple years later, Shackleton brings his ambition back and says, let's, let's do it again. And guess what? Most of the guys signed up for round two. Several years later, the BBC did an interview with a lot of the survivors and said like, why? Like, what in the world were you thinking? Why would you do that? And they said it was all Shackleton. It was all Shackleton. He was the type of leader that helped us do harder, better things than we knew we were capable of. Because he himself was doing them and he believed in us. So he did things like, think about just the, the empathy that goes into this. When they were stuck on the iceberg and someone was feeling gloomy and down, he would give everybody milk so that he wouldn't single out that one person who was gloomy and down. He didn't want them to feel like, oh, this guy's barely hanging on. What he did was, hey, everybody, we're just going to celebrate. And he lifted everybody's spirits. And he's a good leader who was able to help people push them farther than they ever could have imagined. When Jesus opens up the Lord's Prayer by saying, our Father, he, yes, he is, he is saying, this is about salvation, this is about rescue. There's another thing he's doing, though, too. In those days, if you wanted to learn a family trade, you couldn't go to a junior college. Uh, they just didn't have them then. You couldn't look up on YouTube how to learn how to do a trade. You had to learn from your father. There was a relationship that also was like, hey, come apprentice with me, spend time with me, and learn how to do what I do. When we spend time in prayer through God, we are apprenticing. And what are we learning to do? We are learning to bring the kingdom in the here and now. We are setting the world right. Yes, do our ambitions look different on the other side? Absolutely. And like, I'm a pastor in the Midwest because of that. All right. I never wanted to live in the Midwest. Just full disclosure. I like, you all are lovely, but it just wasn't my cup of tea, right? And I have found the death of my ambitions. This is not like a one and done thing. It's a daily, regularly, like, hey, Lord, I'm learning to live with open hands. And as my ambitions died on the other side, I found out like, man, this is even better than I could have ever imagined anywhere else. Like there really is life on the other side of our ambitions. And on the other side of our ambitions, we don't find a hollowed out version of ourselves. 
we find a redeemed, a truer version of who we really are. Because Jesus is inviting us into redemption and we are part of that project. It's not, yes, there is death to yourself, but on the other side of death is a new life, flourishing. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it like barely hanging on by the skin of their teeth. That it'd be okay, but they really can't wait till they die. No, he said, I came that they may have life and it might be abundant. We really do believe that when we spend time with him on the other side, we find life. There is life on the other side of the wall we run into. And we get there through prayer. Your will be done is asking for something that will cost you everything. There's risk involved in it. Absolutely. But we're not asking from someone who isn't willing to follow that path themselves. Jesus prayed, your will be done. He was in a garden. People were coming to kill him. And in prayer, he said, if there's another way, I would love to know that now. But your will be done. That's who we're following. A God who rescues, a God who enters, and a God who lives this out. That's who we're apprenticing under. And we learn how to do that through time. We learn how to do that through time. He's a leader who lived in the space he's inviting us into. Father, I pray that we as a body would find life. That we'd find life on the other side of surrender. Lord, you are good. You care for us. And God, help us to trust that as we learn to respond to your grace through surrender. We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.